Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. Today's podcast guest reached out to me and not only gave me a ton of support and stroked my ego a little bit in my inbox, but he was someone that as an adult told me that he was diagnosed with autism later in life. And he had a lot of criticisms of the neurodiversity movement and a lot of attitudes in terms of disability culture as a whole. It's not too often someone like me hears <laughs> these perspectives from people because while I do get a lot of support for some of my stronger opinions, of course I get kind of some blowback and resistance too. And a lot of the resistance I tend to get is surrounding my beliefs around how autism is currently treated, what applied behavior analysis is encouraging we do in terms of quote unquote progressive treatment. So it was really great to hear from someone as an adult that works as a registered behavior technician with a diagnosis of autism, the challenges that he still faces and the challenges he brought up in the email specifically, which we'll get into in the episode itself, were that he may consider himself to have high-functioning autism, and he may introduce himself as having high-functioning autism, but he still faces quite a few challenges in his work, and he still counts a lot of limitations in, in his day and in his life because of his autism diagnosis, which was the primary reasoning for his apprehension regarding the idea that autism isn't a disorder, it's just something different. And it's people like Matthew Crome, my guest today, that we don't hear a lot from. We may hear them supporting in private. We may read emails from them and support them in our own way through conversations one-to-one. -one. But it's been pretty difficult for these types of people, and when I say types of people, I mean holding these beliefs, to make their way to the the front of the crowd in terms of autism treatment, because we hear in the neurodiversity movement very often that autism is just a difference. It's not a disorder at all. Or now we're hearing that autism is socially constructed, so it's not even considered a neurological issue. And this idea of normalizing things that clearly are not normal is very dangerous and very reckless. And Matthew himself talks about these things. He doesn't claim that he's an autist or an auti or, or autistic person. He says that he is a person with autism because it's not something that he feels is an identity for him, but rather something that he's learned a lot from but certainly poses its challenges. So I really hope that you enjoy today's episode. If you have anybody else that would love to reach out to me and hop into the podcast, you can email me at theangrybehavioranalyst at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy today. Well, Matthew, thank you for reaching out. I was so excited to get your email. <laughs> thank you. When did you start listening to the podcast? Um, just a few weeks ago, really. Um, and you know, like there's the whole kind of discourse between um, 
between, you know, the, the uh, ABA therapy community and then the newer diversity movement. And, um, yeah, you know, that, that was kind of the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of straddling both sides as, you know, someone who's both diagnosed with autism and is a registered behavior technician. Um, yeah, I had a lot of questions for you about that in terms of the neurodiversity movement, because I I don't have a diagnosis of autism. What mm-hmm. I've seen is a lot of kind of categories of people in their own little compartments within the neurodiversity movement. Right. And I haven't had the best experiences with members, but I'm open to hearing about ways that you have maybe different perspectives than I do. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I've kind of been frustrated with, I don't know if you're familiar with some of the kind of influencers in the neurodiversity movement, like Paige Lale is one of them. Chloe Hayden is another one. Yeah. Um, you know, they'll, they'll just kind of trash ABA without really realizing what it is. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I've heard people say that that ABA like increases the risk of um, suicidality and PTSD among autistic people, mm-hmm. which, based on my experience, the therapy we do is not anything even close to that. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and I and I like how you mentioned in some of your podcasts, like you know, um, we don't. Uh, we don't um, base medical treatment, um, you know, on what what it was in the past, and you know, this is a this is a verified form of therapy. This is, you yeah. know, highly, um, highly. I don't know what the right word is, but this is this is like a highly vetted, highly um, organized form of therapy that's that's gone through so many different evolutions and through verifications that um it's not something that you know is is just kind of out there and it's not verified by anything it's yeah you know and so i i feel like in the neurodiversity movement there's a lot of scaremongering about aba and there's um there's a lot of kind of uh misconceptions about it there's you know i've heard a lot of people say um you know, it's kind of dampening neurodiversity within our community. And it's like the, the goal of it is not to change people. The sure. goal of it is to help them mm-hmm. with with difficulties. Um, it's not to change them as people. It, you, you know, right. it, I don't know if you're familiar with Mar- with Mary Barbera. Um, I am. Yeah, she yeah. started quite a few educational um, she spearheaded a lot of things because of her son with autism, but I'm not familiar yeah. on her standpoints in terms of the neurodiversity movement. Um, I mean, I, I think she's uh, um, she's said things like like um, like with her interview with uh, Temple Grand, and she's she's also said like, you know, that that her turn autism around approach is again, it's not to change people. Mm-hmm. at their core it's just to make them higher functioning you know so they um so they're able to cope with with life better i mean you know and it's funny we don't we don't really apply this to any other disability you, you know yeah um, that's a really good point and you, so 
maybe you could help me understand here because I always want to figure out what I might be missing. The neurodiversity movement, from the sound of it, you would think that it embraces all kinds of differences. Right. But it feels like it embraces only specific kinds that kind of agree with the movement itself. That's been my experience. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And one one problem I have with the neurodiversity movement is that, you know, it started, I think, just applying to people who are on the spectrum with potentially ADHD thrown in there sometimes. Mm-hmm. And now it's come to encompass anyone with any kind of neurological difference or um, or disability. And so that's, I mean, that's literally like one third of the population. I think it's something like one fourth of the population has a mental illness, you know, plus throw all the neurological stuff, the neurodevelopmental stuff on there. That's, that's a huge portion of the population. So that's becoming kind of meaningless when it's Mm -hmm. this big umbrella term Mm -hmm. um, versus a term that was just used for people with autism. Um, And, and also, you know, like how, how far does it go, you know, because technically everyone has a different brain. I was going to say, I feel like based if we really use the definition itself, everyone could qualify air quotes as neurodiverse, which would essentially make none of us neurodiverse, right? Right, right. So that's where it becomes challenging in terms of what the movement, I I feel like I know what the movement aims to do. Of course, it said to help people feel like they don't need to strip themselves of their diagnosis or their identity. But what about for those that their diagnosis or their disability has led to immense challenges. And I feel like right. a lot of this is romanticizing disability. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that way or no? Yeah. I mean, and, you know, again, there, there seems to be kind of this double standard with autism when compared to disabilities, the other disabilities, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, people saying autism, a gift, um, autism is not a disability, um, or, um, you, you know, I find it also odd that the whole person first language versus, um, what's the other type, uh, person first, and then there's, so person with autism or di- would it be diagnosis first? No, so I think, person? Oh, I, identity first versus person. Identity first. Okay. Yeah. P- person first is, is person with autism and then identity first is autistic person. Um, but, you know, I've seen overwhelmingly in the neurodiversity movement now that the, you have to use identity first, you have to say autistic person, but then they'll get mad at you if you mm-hmm. if you say like Down syndrome person or something. Um, right. So then how would we, uh, with the rules changing, I imagine it's very hard to keep up with how we speak. Yeah, yeah. People. I just don't see why autism, you have to say autistic person, but for any other disability, it's considered rude to to say um, mm-hmm. the disability before the person or imply that their disability is a really part good of point. Them. Yeah, because with mental illness, too, we don't typically say uh, Kayla is an anorexic woman. We would just right. say Kayla has a history of anorexia or this person has a diagnosis of schizophrenia or, or what have you. Right. So it's a really good point. And I wonder if any of it is tied to the name neurodiversity. Does it have to do with the fact that autism is a a more specific subset of a disability that's too different from Down syndrome? 
to right I, I just I don't know yeah and I feel like part of it is when when people say autism is not a disability you, you know they do it in a sense of sound progressive and like you know mm-hmm. they're they're I don't know they're they're on the side of people with autism but really what they're implying is like oh, autism is not a disability we're not like those people mm-hmm. you know who are who are really disabled you know yeah. they, they're kind of trying to distance themselves in the word disability which is ironically um very ableist as as they would say so mm-hmm. let's talk about ableism a little more because this is something that has received a lot of attention that once again I still find myself confused about the parameters of ableism so you brought up this really great example a few seconds ago where if we feel the need to separate ourselves from people that are more disabled from us that's discriminatory yeah have you seen other outward signs of ableism in in your work as an RBT um well, I think it it depends highly on the person. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you know, um, like I, I um, a lot of people won't believe that I'm on the autism spectrum just because they have this preconceived notion of yeah. what autism looks like. Yeah. And that's partially why I feel like, um, you know, in the DSM grouping all of the the pervasive developmental disorders into autism spectrum disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, this was um, you know mostly a mistake just because it's it's grouping some very different presentations of autism in yeah. with each other. And so now people don't know. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I usually just say when, when I bring up my disability, other people, I say I have high functioning autism mm-hmm. um, specifically because, you know, when they just hear the term autism, they usually think low functioning autism. Sure. Um, uh, you know, I do think Asperger's should still be a term just because again, that, that um, describes uh, a very specific form of autism. Yeah. Um, and I do understand that clinicians were having trouble distinguishing different types of autism because, you know, say there are some people who meet the criteria for, you know, so-called classic autism or autistic mm-hmm. disorder who are still very high functioning, yeah. usually because of stuff like like ABA or mm-hmm. some kind of um, extensive therapy that allowed them to adapt better. Um, but even that is still different from Asperger's, which is kind of high functioning from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Um, Where... Do you feel like the negativity or the negative connotations around functioning labels come from? Oh, that's interesting because um, I still do think functioning labels are useful. Um, I I think the reason I've heard given um, by people who are like Paige Lale, who, who are, who are, against functioning labels is that they don't fully dis- they they kind of put people in the boxes and they don't fully describe every individual's um level of functioning in life for example you know people with high functioning autism might have a lot of comorbid diagnoses mental illnesses that make it hard for them to um live life low functioning autistic people are, are often not taken very seriously because people just assume they can't do anything. Yeah. Um, 
So I think that's that's where a lot of people are against functioning labels, and I can I can understand that perspective. Um, um, but I still do think they're useful because there is a difference. You know, there there is yeah. a, a difference between high function, low function, whatever you want to call it. That mm -hmm. you know, there's a difference. So. Yeah, the context with that is really important because I agree with you that if it's being used to degrade someone or point out or assume, let's say, assume yeah. that they can't do something, then of course it's cruel to use something like that the same way we would use any sort of name to any disability. Right. But in the sense of trying to guide what treatment or any modification or accommodation might look like, I imagine that it's helpful for people to know yeah. what severity level we're looking at. And Again, I feel like when when we clutch onto the identity of autism versus I have autism, I feel like those are the people that get more upset about functioning labels. Yeah, and and those people almost always tend to be very much on the high functioning end, you know. Which is interesting and kind yeah. of coincidental. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, um, do you think it's because of the fact that they have such robust skills and they're able to recount their experience that they assume people think the same as them? I just, I'm trying to understand where some of the arrogance comes from. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, and I've I've actually heard a lot of narratives um, from low functioning people who have used, you know, different technologies. Um, and yeah. of course, you have to be very careful because of like the whole FC mm -hmm. and um, what's it called now? Ra rapid prompting, you know, so you have to kind of distinguish the 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 real cases versus the aided by a facilitator cases. Sure. Um, but from, from the narratives that I've, I've heard from, um, low functioning people, I haven't heard the same kind of, um, like a lot of them don't seem to be super interested in a neurodiversity movement hmm. or even consider themselves neurodiverse. Um, yeah. a lot of them just kind of focus on the immediate challenges of autism and, and how they can be better accommodated or, or how they can be offered help in their in their lives um it's kind of like a, a bigger fish to fry sort of yeah yeah like they they have to deal with the more immediate issues they they don't care about how society sees them as much because they're dealing with their own issues mm -hmm. around their autism so and with their ability to describe or i should say lack thereof since they don't often consider themselves neurodiverse or something like that. I wonder why they're so hidden from the limelight of the the story that's put out there. Do you think it's like right. a headline? Like the, the neurodiversity movement sounds like it's really noble. So the ones that speak on it are are amplified more than the lower functioning people? Um well I think maybe it's because um, it's, it's harder to say autism is a gift when you look at people who are really disabled by it, you know, it's, yeah. it's harder to maintain that narrative mm -hmm. when, when you see someone who is clearly having a hard time functioning, clearly is disabled by it. Um, and also, 
um, you know, the whole actually autistic hashtag, I think, started because um, because uh, there was a lot of parents of low functioning autistic children speaking on behalf of them, which um, I, I do have a genuine problem with, you know, um, because I, I don't know if you've ever seen the Autism Speaks PSA. I have, uh, I am autism, mm -hmm. but, but like yes. that was a big, that was a big case of, you know, people just putting out, you know, crazy misconceptions about autism, yeah. um, and not letting autistic people to actually speak, which is ironic that it's Autism Speaks. Sure. So, <laughs> kind so of I think, purpose. I, I think, um, I, I I think that's that's part of um it is is that they don't want the parents, but I do think the parents do have their say, you know, in it. Because yeah. severe autism does affect the family as well. Mm -hmm. you know? Um but I do find it frustrating that many in the neurodiversity community, you know, claim to speak for for all people with autism. Um when uh you know when they really their experience is completely different than mm -hmm. someone with low functioning autism have you found some positives to to come out of this movement um definitely more awareness mm -hmm. about about autism um you know more i mean i don't know how much it's related but you know there's more you know autism seems to be everywhere in media now yeah. um uh um, so yeah, definitely more conversations about it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I, like many kind of activist movements, I think it was, um, you know, started with good intentions. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, but I think it, it, it later, you know, kind of became, um, more, more misguided, um, one thing I've also noticed, this is, you know, with just some very specific people, not the whole movement, but, you know, I've, I've been on a lot of, um, online meetup groups for adults with autism. And there was one particular group that just hated neurotypicals, um, and would say things like, I think it's really neurotypicals who have the disability. Um, oh, that's and, an interesting perspective, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was literally like autism supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> I've and, heard that phrase recently. Do you, and what's really sad, and please, you correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, I'm finding that to be very legitimate. Like having a disability kind of puts you on top of some sort of hierarchy, uh, like above people that don't have a disability with the with the idea that you kind of see things deeper or from a more valuable lens. Right, right. I mean, that that kind of seems, well, I guess that couldn't be ableist because they're neurotypical. And then that's the confusion. Like, what does, yeah. what does that mean? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and I've, I've noticed that with, with, um, uh, with, with other things um, too, like, yeah, just people kind of considering themselves um you know oh you know we, we we kind of have the 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 higher ground or the or the better perspective you know yeah and, and i mean and a lot of times they think that you know they can't be bigots because they're in this 
minority group. But it, I mean, the truth is like, we're all humans and we're all prone to the same biases sure. and mistakes. Sure. Yeah, none of us are immune to being biased or bigoted for that matter. Yeah, yeah. But on the on the subject of like of like autism being superior, have you have you ever seen um uh, it was it was a few years ago. It was um it was the Predator movie. It was it was a movie in the Predator yes. series where autism is literally the next stage of human evolution. <laughs> what? Yeah. So, so after the asteroid comes and wipes us out, everyone will come back as autistic. Well, no, it's it's um like you know the 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 predator um what whatever it is is it, it like it has like some alien technology and they're trying to take an autistic kid <laughs> to 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 basically like steal his autism to to, <laughs> to improve themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wild. It's the Predator. It was re- it was released in 2016. You know, it's it's in it's in the Predator series. You sure. Know. <laughs> That's quite the storyline. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I, I mean, it's just the most ridiculous plot for a movie. But I mean, but there are people who who, leg- who legitimately support that. Like, there's this. Uh, Tony Atwood video that was that was going on that uh, that was labeled is Asperger's the next stage of human evolution. <laughs> wow. Well, at the rate that this that diagnoses are exploding, I mean, who knows what the next phase of human evolution <laughs> is? You know, I mean, do, do you find it? And this is a really this is a question I think a lot about. There's the idea that social contagion, so peer influence and popularity. Mm-hmm contributes to the rise in diagnoses while others contest that well now there's just more awareness so that's why there's more diagnoses being made where do you think you fall on that spectrum um i would say it's probably both because we are now i mean autism used to be just the most severe low functioning cases Mm -hmm. and even when we had asperger's that was considered a diagnosis separate from autism um but um, now that it's all grouped into one, you know, we're all putting those diagnoses under the same umbrella. But also, yes, there does seem, you know, what I would particularly like your um, your episode on the kind of the social contagion on TikTok and other social media platforms where, you know, people are, are thinking, you know, because they have... Um, because you know they're exposed to all these people with these different mental disorders or claiming to have these different mental disorders Mm -hmm. they're more likely to evaluate their own lives and think oh Mm -hmm. you know maybe i have that too um and it you know i i feel like on platforms like that it's it's very much glorified you don't see the actual difficulties associated with with dealing with those disorders Mm -hmm. um i don't know if you're familiar with the the TikToker Ticks and Roses, who was exposed as faking t- Tourette's. Oh. Um, was this and... the, one of the cases of a girl yelling beans? Was no, no, it was different. Um, like she was, uh, she was, she she would like pretend to tick while while driving and stuff like that, and like in 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 you know potentially dangerous situations. Um, but basically, how she got exposed um was 
you, you know, her her sister testified online. Oh, she never had these when she was younger. You know, mm-hmm. it, it just started about now. And, you know, she she clearly had more issues than 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 just, yeah. you know, faking Tourette's. She, she was faking other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, that, that just goes to show you um, that, you know, you can't trust everybody <laughs> claiming to have this stuff online. Yeah. Um, and, you know, again, they're turning to, uh, you know, young people are turning to um, social media instead of actual doctors. Look, my philosophy around self-diagnosis is like, if, okay, if you think you have this disorder, you know, then you should go to a doctor about it, you know, um, right. and, and try to get an actual diagnosis. I understand getting an autism diagnosis is hard. I had to go through about six months of evaluations to get my diagnosis. That's, um, uh, putting you through the ringer quite a bit. And yeah. Sure yeah. But, but, you know, funny. you go to a doctor once, once that's becoming a concern because otherwise, is it really a concern, you, you know, mm-hmm. if you don't have to receive any accommodations for it or sure. uh, whatever it may be, um, you, you know, just, and, you know, I've heard, I've heard there's this particular podcast that was saying, well, the real experts on mental illness are the people living with mental illness. It's like, so you're just going to discount all the doctors who have been through years yeah. of, of, of medical training to. Yeah. Well, it's that lived this. experience argument, which again, experience right. is really insightful and can give us really valuable information. Yes, definitely. But going back to the fact that we're all very biased when it comes to looking at ourselves, I think it's really dangerous to rely on our experience alone to make a professional diagnosis that we're not equipped or, or trained to make. Yeah. And I think that's really scary in terms of all of the people that are suggesting certain interventions when they don't have a professional diagnosis. And many young people are following these TikTok recommendations. I just wonder what the ramifications of that would even be. Right, right. Matthew, when were you diagnosed? Um, I was actually diagnosed really late. I was diagnosed when I was 19. Um, And that was that was because of a lot of different factors. I did have obviously signs from since I was very little, but I was born super premature, um, three months premature. And um, uh, and so, you know, my parents didn't know at that time, you know, is this just general delays, you know, that come with being born premature? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I had other stuff going on too. Um, um, you, you know, and then I was just, mainstreamed you know after being in a special needs preschool and because i was able to cope with the uh just the academic aspect of it there never really was a concern um in terms of my social skills i mean they always noted that i had um social skills issues but you know they they kind of thought well oh he's doing well in school um and (laughs) and so once i hit um once i graduated from high school and just had no real social or independent living skills that was when life became really hard um and uh that you know that's when i sought a diagnosis and i i kind of always known you know since i found out what autism was but um you know i i didn't really 
trust myself um, in terms of that, you know, uh, um, and so I never really asked about it. And, you know, unfortunately, because I was diagnosed late, um, it's been a lot harder to get services. Um, you know, I live in California. We have regional centers here, which are basically quasi-governmental organizations that that fund very specific developmental disabilities. Sure. Um, and so I'm trying to get funding from my local regional center, but um, it's it's been a it's been literally like a three year process. It's a long legal process, and you know we're kind of starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel. But um, we're we're kind of trying to you know navigate. What if I don't even qualify at all? Because they want you to be pretty severely disabled to to be. Um, in in their program um so yeah in becoming an rbt have you found that it has helped you with what you struggle with at all um yes because i've had to learn many of the aspects of professionalism um and um you know kind of maintaining um, open interaction with, you know, both, both the kids I work with and the parents of the kids I work with. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, luckily, you know, the companies I've worked with have been understanding of my disability. Um, you know, I've, I've had to explain to them I'm on the spectrum and, um, they, uh, um, Um, you know, the, yeah, they've been pretty accommodating, but at the same time, you know, you have to follow certain guidelines and you have to, um, you know, those require social skills. And so um, I've definitely had to learn those kind of the hard way, but um, yeah. yeah and you're kind of teaching yourself because you've never yeah. had any form of services. Right. Right. That's hard. Because there's so many intricacies to social skills. Yeah, yeah. When you, do you work with clients who kind of have social skill goals? Um, yes. Um, so far, I've only really worked with um, mostly or fully verbal kids. But um, yeah, a lot of them have have social skills uh, goals. Um, and, um, you know, some of the things I can't, fully participate in like there was a social skills group that a company I was working with did um and it, it wasn't it wasn't part of the work it was just kind of like an optional um thing sure. um but you, you know teaching social skills to kids um exclu exclusively would would probably be pretty hard for me so I couldn't fully participate in that um um yeah but in terms of of like maintaining for example three-turn conversations staying on topic or or just yeah. you know asking questions i've been able to do that with kids pretty successfully do you think that the goals that you that have been programmed by by a bcba let's say do you think they would have been helpful had you had these services when you were younger i think so yeah um i i mean um yeah, if, definitely from from an early age, if I had 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 those kind of, I mean, I, I did have some social skills, um, some social skills training in in the sense that, um, 
you know, because of being born so premature, I, um, I, I had some, some speech therapy and social skills therapy, um, in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it wasn't, it wasn't ABA therapy. It wasn't, you know, particularly directed since I didn't have an autism diagnosis. So, um, what made you become an RBT or become interested in, in professionally? Um, well, I actually, um, you know, when, when I was, I'm studying psychology current, currently like community college and I was in an abnormal psychology group and, um, in my study group, some, someone mentioned that she was an RBT and, um, you, you know, I, I just, and I, and I pretty recently received my diagnosis and I thought, Oh, wouldn't it be great to work with autistic kids? Um, and so, uh, I, you know, I, I spent, you know, the next year kind of, um, finding an RBT job. Unfortunately, you know, I do, I do have some limitations because, um, I can't, I can't drive and a lot of RBT jobs involve driving. So, yeah, um, um, so um, it took me a while to find one that, that, accept, that accepted, um, my inability to drive. But, um, you know, once I, once I found it, um, you know, I, I was kind of, um, really intrigued by the whole world of applied behavior, uh, analysis, you know, especially because how it was based on like a lot of like Skinner's principles, yeah. um, because, you know, we learned, we learned about that um, very early on in, in, uh, in my psychology education. And it just made sense to me, you know, it's just very logical. Um, but, but, you know, if you, if you're rewarded by behavior, you, you're likely to repeat it again, it'll get reinforced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, um, and also just all the different opportunities within ABA, like, you know, being an RBT versus a BCABA versus a BCBA versus a BCBAD, um and also all the a- applications that it potentially had i mean i know all the insurance is kind of in kids yeah. with developmental disabilities but there's also like animal training and gerontology and sports medicine and and all that um so there's there's just all kinds of interesting things about aba that i was really intrigued by once i found out more about it um and it's definitely the career path that i think i want to stay on so that's great. That's great. It is. It's it's interesting when you learn about it and it seems almost too basic on the surface. Right. Level. Oh, yeah. You you reinforce things you like and maybe you punish things you don't like. That's kind of how function or humans tend to function at a very reductionist. Yeah. View. But you're right. There are so many different applications of it that I hope continue to grow beyond yeah. The, you know the autism world and the disabilities world and don't get me wrong it's wonderful that it's in place for those things but yeah i'm yeah. seeing more applications of it in in the mental illness realm too which has been really right. exciting have right. you come across any challenges that you didn't expect in becoming an rbt um that's a good question um um i, I mean i've i've come across and I'm not trying to to name names here but I've come across um a lot of difficulties in terms of being assigned cases mm. um like just a lot of confusion around um around where I'll be working or who I'll be working with um being presented different cases in one one time and then 
different ones in another. So definitely kind of confusion around that. Um, and type of logistics. Yeah. 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 Like miscommunications, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, um, that, oh, definitely, you know, lots of cancellations and no shows on the parents part. Those are difficult. Um, especially, you know, when the cancellations are, are quite sudden and you've already, you know, blocked out those two hours or however mm-hmm. much time it is. Um, and, and, you know, now you have nothing to do for those two hours. And yeah, yeah. Um, it's the stone, I think, in everybody's shoe is the, the scheduling and yeah. the more administrative type of stuff. That's, those are tough to navigate. And I, I feel like, does that happen pretty frequently for you? Yes. Yes. Um, um, although luckily it's via telehealth, so it's not like oh. I have to, I have to go out physically to that place, you, sure. you know, or travel in any way. And sure. That is very convenient. That's nice that you're able to, to do it. How have telehealth sessions been? Um, well, they're, they're a little harder than in person, definitely. Cause I mean, I've done both telehealth and in person, but in person just flows very nicely, you know, mm-hmm. especially when you have a parent involved and they're, you know, they're doing activities with the kid. Um, telehealth is just kind of more awkward and, you know, yeah. it's hard to keep the kid engaged. Hard to uh, fill the time. Yeah. Yeah. With, I want to tie us back to something you mentioned earlier with the idea that some people with autism claim that those who understand autism best are the ones that have a diagnosis themselves. Right. Have you found your diagnosis to hinder your performance in terms of being an RBT or has it been more helpful I think it depends on the situation. I can definitely relate to a lot of the kids I've worked with Mm -hmm. um, because even though, you know, their challenges tend to be more severe than mine, um, uh, you know, I can still relate to them and having um, similar challenges on a milder level. Um, But also just in terms of professionalism, you know, all, all the kind of job skills, um, I think Temple Grandin has talked about it before, but she's she said, like, I know people who are um, like graduate, have graduate degrees who have autism, who are very, very high functioning. But then, you know, they get fired from their job because they can't go to work on time or they can't, um, you know, do something related to executive functioning. And so that's been a challenge for me, definitely, you know, keeping up with the schedule, keeping mm-hmm. organized, following um, all kinds of instructions, um, just, just anything involved with having a job pretty much. Yeah. Um, it's definitely, there's, there's definitely jobs that I couldn't do because of my limitations. Like I, I could never do a lot of like the minimum wage jobs. Like, like I could never work at McDonald's. I could never, um, uh, work at a coffee shop really. It's just too much noise and too, too many, instructions you know all at once so that makes sense do you find that in recognition of your limitations how much do you think society should accommodate things like being on time or lots of instructions because we know that things like the neurodiversity movement 
essentially ask that everybody bend to the limitations. I want your view on on that. Um, well, I think it's for, you know, what is reasonable, what is um doable for for the company. Um and I know I know, you know, the the laws around it aren't perfect like like I said, I've been unable to apply for a lot of jobs because of the driving yeah. um, and, you, you know, um, and unfortunately I can't make a case for that. Like, oh, you know, under the, the American Disabilities Act, you have to make um, an accommodation for me not being able to drive because it's one of the main qualifications right under sure. the job. Yeah. Um, so, you know, unfortunately I do run into issues like that, but um for for the most part, um, I I I feel like um, um, you know, people have been able to make reasonable accommodations for me. Um, I mean, obviously, I don't I don't want them like bending over backwards just because um, I I have these limitations. But um, I do feel like people have have been reasonably accommodating of of me. Yeah. Yeah. Matthew, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to touch on while we're here? I think I think we got to um, a lot of what I wanted to talk about. Um, I mean, I, I think I think also, um, you know, the discourse around autism is very polarized as as it is for a lot of things it's either you know kind of like the 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 old autism speaks view you know that autism is a scourge that it's only like they only really see it as the most severe cases yeah. and even the most severe cases they don't really provide a lot of humanity mm-hmm. towards yeah. those cases they, they just think it's just this horrible affliction um and they, and they focus on how hard it is for the parent you know not for the actual person with autism and then you have you know the neurodiversity movement which is that autism isn't even a disability at all and um you, you know it only focuses on the most high functioning cases you know savants that yeah. kind of thing um so i i'm glad to to see that you know there's people with a middle ground because like a lot of things you know, it's hard to find a middle ground. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially now. Or, yeah. Yeah. How do you think practitioners without a diagnosis can bring a more nuanced view to around the discourse that you mentioned? Well, I think maybe just, just basing um, conversation autism around facts I mean, I, I feel like a lot of the people on the um, on the autism is a scourge side, you know, tend to engage in pseudoscience, mm-hmm. um, you know, anti-vaxxers. There's there's the miracle mineral yeah. bleach stuff, which is just the most hor- horrific thing ever. If you go yeah. down that rabbit hole, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, even even stuff like uh, facilitated communication, you know, just there's there's lots of pseudoscience. Um in in that arena and with the neurodiversity movement i wouldn't say as much there's pseudoscience but there's there's still a lot of um flames that that aren't really based in reality so i think i think the way to moderate both sides is to kind of keep it based in in you know scientifically what autism is Mm -hmm. um 
and um you know but i know i know that's also not the best way to appeal to people because um people don't generally tend to um respond to facts and figures as much yeah as, as you know as is appropriate um i think from my understanding people respond more to stories mm-hmm. um and you know that's particularly different to, particularly difficult with with autism because it's just such a broad spectrum now um so um but yeah. and the science itself can be really hard to digest so the yeah. stories make it make a little bit more sense for people but the stories are also very much uh kind of a more subjective nature than like you said the the facts themselves so i could see where that would be really challenging to make it accessible to everyone and or digestible to everyone or palatable yeah Yeah. so well matthew thank you so much for reaching out i'm so happy that we got to talk i hope we'll keep in touch so that we could just talk about our lives and everything we're doing (laughs) (laughs) and um i hope you reach out to me with any questions you might have or anything that might come up okay all right have a good one matthew thank you so much all right thank you (laughs) Ha ha ha!